0: This is Minesworth Meeting from Stern Strategy Group. A podcast where we talk with some of the top thought leaders in the world. From business leaders and technology analysts. What I would call an obsessive maverick. Okay. Somebody who just gets obsessed with a tough problem, won't let it go, and is willing to embrace unconventional solutions. To me, that's my definition of geek these days. To academics and researchers. If you want to avoid
1: preventable failures and you want to have the most intelligent failures, that's a team sport. Right? You've got to be asking people, what do you know? What do you see? What am I missing? What am I missing ought to be a prominent, piece of your repertoire.
0: We welcome a new MindWorth Meeting in each episode. Here you'll find accessible, down-to-earth conversations about some of the most important topics of the day, with the experts and leaders who are the top authorities in their fields. And now, here's Minds Meeting.
1: Welcome to Minds Meeting. I'm Whitney Jennings.
0: And I'm Justin Lewis. We welcome a remarkable guest for this episode, Holocaust survivor and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Daughter of Auschwitz, Tova Friedman. It's an important discussion about the roots of hate and the potential for peace. We also have a special guest co-host for this episode, our colleague Meg Virig from the Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Team.
1: We're so excited for you to hear our chat with Tova. Here's Meg to kick things off. So Tova, your story is a testament to really incredible resilience in the face of unimaginable adversity. You've been telling your story to various audiences for years. What made you decide that now is the time to write your memoir, The Daughter of Auschwitz?
2: I always wanted to do it, but I just didn't have the tenacity. I didn't have the time. And then COVID came. Mm -hmm. So I'm on my bed during COVID, and I get a phone call from a reporter, Malcolm, who was my co-writer. And he was also at his house, and he couldn't do anything. And borders were closed. So he said, let's try it. Let's, Let's write. So we uh, I had to learn how to use your, the computer and send them information and so forth. And we did it.
0: COVID was definitely a good time to do things like that.
2: We had no distractions. And it was just right. And we met in Poland. So we knew each other slightly.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about how you met?
2: We were at a convention, our 75th anniversary of liberation of Auschwitz. And he was, there were lots and lots of reporters from all over the world. We met for about half hour. He did a short documentary on me and I liked it. It was a very nice documentary. So when he called me, it sounded right. And which it was a trial. And the first chapter seemed to go very well. And when we finished the first chapter, the publisher liked it. So it was his impetus, really.
0: You've told your story many times to, to audiences around the world. Right. Uh, how was it? different writing it down
2: it's completely different because when you talk you're done with it within an hour Mm -hmm. you talk about it you feel whatever you feel you go home you're done this was very different because the memories came back i had nightmares i felt depressed a little bit i said oh i wish my mom would have been here my husband had died recently it was more emotional and it lasted longer. Although for a book, it was very short, something like eight months from beginning to end. It had this intensity. Right. It was a very intense experience. What
1: really resonated with me when I read through The Daughter of Auschwitz*. how you could feel how much you missed your mother throughout that entire story, because it was really not just the story of you, but also her story as well. And also the story of growing up as a survivor too, as a child of survivors too. Right. So it was such a multifaceted experience. I think that's part of why I really love that, reading your book so much.
2: Well, you know, it's just not my story. It's a story of the million and a half children who just weren't as lucky because we duplicated, you know, don't forget there was a template, the way Hitler did the war, the whole thing in the same way in every city, in every ghetto, everybody marched to the crematoriums the same way, to the gas chambers. People were tattooed the same way so that nobody had to think. They could do exactly what they were told. So in a way, my story can be duplicated by a million and a half.
0: I found it interesting. So your professional background is in clinical therapy and social work. And you were talking about the process of writing the book, that you had nightmares, that you were experiencing uh, strong feelings. Do you think that your education, your training in therapy helped you tell your story?
2: Yes. One of the qualities of a therapist is to be authentic Mm -hmm. uh, and help the client to be authentic. Because fooling oneself, it just doesn't do any good. You don't get better. You really have to be straightforward. And sometimes you see things about yourself that you don't like necessarily. I tried to make it as authentic and as real as I could remember, as real. And by the way, I never read anybody else's story at that time, so I don't get confused.
0: Was it cathartic in the end?
2: Yes, it was very, very cathartic, especially the reaction to it. I felt done something you know at this age you don't have that much time, and you really have to number your time by weeks by months if you're lucky by by years I, i'm very lucky. I just celebrated my 85th birthday. I was able to accomplish this and still get the reaction. Like my husband is there to celebrate. My mother, of course. It's bittersweet. Bringing up
1: your family too. I mean, the story of your life really spread thanks to your grandson and TikTok in a very 2020s kind of way. Can you tell us more about how your grandson brought that in, how
2: you got started? My children and grandchildren know about my experience from the time they were tiny. When they first asked me what the number is about, I was authentic like my mother was. I told them only what they could understand. And as they get older, they get to know more and more. So my grandson grew up in the atmosphere of understanding and knowing and so forth. And then he absolutely loves TikTok. So he said to me very casually, Safta, that's Hebrew for grandma. You have two minutes. Just talk a little bit about yourself in two minutes. I said, oh, I have two minutes. I said, why two minutes? He says, because the people will be watching it, if anybody. He said, I'm not even sure anybody will. Their attention span is two minutes. I said, oh, that's good. I I can do that. So we were having Shabbat dinner in their house. After we finished, he asked me a few questions. And that's it. And he said, I I wonder who's going to... And I never heard of TikTok. I said, I wonder... What he's talking about within a very short time it just the responses were fabulous. they grew and grew and grew until at one time they reached I think ninety million I was just shocked- he was shocked
0: It's so interesting the way that stories spread these days, where, as before, you would have had to read it in a book, read it in a newspaper or magazine, and today it's instantaneous
2: you know the media has also very negative sides to it. People tell nonsense. And my clients always tell me, why can't I be like X, Y, and Z? Because she's in Facebook. I said, forget it. It's probably just fairy tales. So it's good and bad. But I like the good part of it is that you can educate people very quickly. And you can reach them in the entire universe. We got phone calls from India, from Australia, from teachers, from kids. It was really amazing. It was amazing.
0: Are there some specific interactions that stick with you that were kind of unexpected from people on TikTok?
2: Yes, yes. Well, first of all, everybody wanted to see my tattoo.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, in a world of everybody being tattooed, I mean, you walk on the street, you can't find anybody who's not tattooed. When you go swimming, I spend my time reading tattoos (laughs) so that why it was so strange for them to see my tattoo, that was really every single person who watched wanted to see it again and again. And I was very happy to show it because it's my witness in case somebody says it didn't happen. This really is my witness to the world. And I remember that reaction. It was a very strong reaction to it.
0: My great uncle was also a survivor, and I don't remember much about him. I do remember him having the tattoo on his arm. And it is a powerful thing, and that has stuck with me for many, many years. And I can only imagine the impression that it's making on kids today, and they will remember your story many years into the future as well.
2: I hope so. In fact, there was a person who made a sculpture of a hand, and he called me and asked me if he could use my tattoo. I hate sticking out. And I said, sure. You know, I mean...
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
2: We know
1: that uh, studies have shown that knowledge of the Holocaust has been decreasing among the younger members of the generation's. So in that kind of world, what do you think are the best ways to raise awareness among those younger generations? How can we best equip them as the leaders of the future with the tools and the knowledge that they need to ensure that this won't ever happen again?
2: It's very complicated because the young people have so many different things that demands their attention. But I would say education and speakers like myself—not only necessary from the Holocaust, but from any place with genocide—the young people are not aware of how difficult the world is and their place in it, and they have to sort of be made aware that life does not begin with their birth, although it does begin for them, mm-hmm. but not for the universe. And I think the understanding of history and what history means and the effect of people in history. People make history. History doesn't get made by itself. Mm -hmm. Leaders make history. Politicians make history. I think they have to be made aware of the universality of humanity. How does a Holocaust begin and start? You don't just wake up one day and you are in Auschwitz. It's a very slow process. Hitler, for instance, wrote his book in 1924. That's a long time ago until he started to act on it. Young people have to be just educated. Our education has not done that just hasn't done it. They don't know history. They don't know different countries, especially in America. In some way, we still have an isolationist feeling. They don't understand that what goes on any place in the world affects them also.
0: Yep. And that was one of the questions that I wanted to get to is it's interesting in the world today that young people especially are really seeing global conflicts through their devices. It's from a distance. They don't necessarily feel like it impacts them. With the reach of social media like TikTok, do you think that can make a difference as far as taking away that distance through the screen?
2: Absolutely. Americans have been raised on everything is so far away. But I think that COVID told us just the opposite. Mm -hmm. I think they have to understand that humanity is one nowadays for all kinds of reasons, because of science, because of politics. And I think that maybe that will make them feel closer. And again, education, understanding other people. Young people don't have enough contact with foreigners. Like in Europe, they do. In Europe, people speak five or six languages because the borders are so close. People go back and forth. So a German child can understand a French child because he's been to Paris with his parents even on a weekend you know what I mean? We don't have any of this. Mm-hmm. I think we have to bring more international thing into our schools.
0: Yep, I agree. And
2: Studies have proven that increased diversity does help reduce that kind of thinking. When we talk diversity, we talk about only American diversity. That's not where it's at. American diversity is good, but that's different. Sure. We have to understand that a Chinese child in China has something common with an American child here. There used to be a time when we had pen pals or whatever. I think that's what it should happen. A little bit more connection so that the young people growing up don't feel that their responsibility is only to their community, but it's worldly. Otherwise, we lost.
0: Sure. Yeah. And you've said that hatred is one of the fastest growing phenomenon today. How can we as individuals, and leaders of organizations as well, kind of confront those systemic prejudices and try to counteract intolerance?
2: I think we have to understand scapegoating. Mm -hmm. Something goes wrong, you blame somebody. It's true in therapy. When somebody says to me, oh, they would have a great life if only their husbands, if only their mother-in-law, if only their children, they would live well. I think that personal responsibility Hatred means I hate the other person because they are making my life bad. Mm-hmm. Like in Germany, if the Jews weren't here, the Germans would be thriving during World War II. I'm not talking now.
0: Sure. Yeah, of course.
2: And Hitler had a very easy way to persuade them. Only he had to say, you know what? We'll get rid of the Jews and we'll have a great life. It's scapegoating. It's one of humans failing of blaming. Mm -hmm. And I think that hatred that's going on now is the blaming. All of a sudden, it's all over the world. Since the world is really having such a tough time in so many ways, let's blame the Jews. It's a very simplistic idea, but a complicated action. I mean, the anti-Semitic incidents in this country have increased by 60% since the war in in Israel, because nobody understands what the war in Israel really is about, because they don't have the history. Again, we're very limited. People are very limited. And I think you've got to broaden their education in some way.
0: Yeah. And it feels like so much of it too comes from the othering of groups, us versus them, rather than putting names to people, putting faces to people. It's they want to do X, Y, Z. It's
2: the phobia of the stranger. Mm-hmm. The truth is that we have a lot in common, much more than we're different. And I think we know that. If you know that, there will be so much less hatred and prejudice. It's very upsetting what's going on in this country and other countries too, the anti-Semitism. I am going to Thailand to a peace conference. And that's going to be my theme. Anti-Semitism, how it starts. It's another thing which is interesting. You know, follow the leader. Mm -hmm. I once spoke to a college. They didn't have a single Jew there. Not one. They had anti-Semitic demonstrations. You ask, have you met any Jews? Why do you hate them? Oh, everybody hates them. They have never met you. I spoke on Zoom. I asked the president of the school, why am I invited? There are no Jews here. They said, we're inviting you because of that. Mm-hmm. They're just demonstrating. So some of it is prejudice without any base, without any knowledge. It's a copycat.
0: Yeah. Going back to that engagement, I'm interested in that. How did it go while you were giving the talk and what kind of reactions and responses did you get afterward?
2: Well, it was on Zoom, so it was very hard. I asked, Is there any Jews here? One kid got up and he said, I think my grandmother was Jewish. Okay. So I said, Really? He said, Yes. And I feel very bad about this demonstration. Well, don't forget those who demonstrated were not on Zoom. Mm -hmm, It was the rest of the school. So they were glad that I was talking. They were very responsive, which is a wonderful thing for me that every place I go and talk, I get exceptionally positive. I mean, I wish somebody would take me on and yell at me and say something anti-Semitic so I can have a discussion and say, Why do you feel like that? Sure. I've been across the country and I get the best responses, but it's very disturbing what I read. I want to tell you, some of these things keep me up at night because they remind me of the
0: Second World War. Yeah. And I think so much of the disconnect these days is people don't listen to each other. Uh, I have a very good friend. We come from very different ideologies and we're able to have a conversation and ask each other, why do you think this way? I'm not trying to change his mind he's not trying to change my mind but we can have that conversation without getting angry we can build those bridges of understanding
2: that's unusual in my experience people still don't talk to each other if they voted the wrong way it's politics it's finished already it was years ago they still will not go to dinner together because one voted for trump and the other did not and it's still an issue so now they found jews it's like the hatred is there We just have to find the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And we've always been scapegoats. And especially now with the war in Israel, they combined Jews and Israelis. That's the latest anti-Semitism. Very, very disconcerting. At least what are we going to do in this world? I want to live long enough just to see a little bit of peace. Yeah. That's all I want. You know, so I go to the temple. I say, you know what? Give me a few years. Maybe this will be sorted out.
0: Right. And that goes in perfectly into uh, another question I wanted to ask. So if you could sit down with global leaders, if you are at the United Nations, you're the only person speaking, all the global leaders are there. What are one or two key takeaways you would want them to bring back with them?
2: Not a politician. I spoke at the UN in New York City. There were 30 ambassadors from different countries. And I said that each one's responsibility is to fight the hatred. It doesn't matter against whom. Yep. Right now is anti Semitism. It could be uh, anti Islamism. It could be I don't know how many isms there are. There used to be a time against communism. I don't know if you remember where everybody was losing their jobs because they once went to a meeting. So it looks like people are there to somehow get each other. And I think this is what the leaders must address in their own country. They have to look at their country and say, what's going on? Is this supposed to be a country of hatred or a country of peace? Now, people like Stalin wanted hatred. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope the American leaders listen. I I would say right now, at least I feel, that the American leaders really and truly want to have their country in peace. And I think rather than trying to figure out how I can be stronger than the other country, what can I do with my own country? What else is there? I have no idea how to do that. If (laughs) If I were... Let's say you are. Yeah. If an old lady like me, I would, I would have the country sing all kinds of, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of things like We Shall Overcome, you know, one of the old songs, I don't know if you remember that. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I would do some kind of peaceful to calm the country down because right now everybody hates everybody. Do you feel the same way?
0: Yeah. And again, I think the biggest problem is that nobody's willing to listen and that so many people feel like if I talk louder than this person, then I'll be heard. Rather than speaking more quietly so we can each speak, it just feels like I have to speak louder than this person.
2: Well, you know what, David? listen. Because if you listen, you're afraid they'll convince you. People don't want to hear somebody else's opinion. Because if you're going to tell me that, Mm -hmm. you know what, maybe you're right. I have to change my mind. And that means that I was wrong. And people are afraid to do that. The courage to be wrong. It's very important to be able to say, you know what, I was wrong. I mean, right now, people don't talk to each other about the Israeli conflict. Yes, stop the fighting. No, stop the fighting. Yes, do this. No, do that. I'm not talking to you. I'm just, just don't talk. My friends in London, stop talking to me because we didn't agree as if we had something to do with the war in Israel. I mean, she's there. I'm here. What are we fighting about? We don't live there. But she's so angry, in my opinion. So what I'm saying is the leaders have to figure out how to work with the anger. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: No, because that anger can destroy each other.
0: I love what you said about the courage to be wrong. It's such a simple but powerful way to think about it.
2: It's true. It's true. The courage to say, you're right, you're right. What was I thinking? I understand you, but nobody does that. They just, you're right. They stop talking and they stop listening. Don't talk to them about facts. I made up my mind.
0: And I think in some places, it's also okay to say, I'm sorry, I don't agree with you. Absolutely. And I think people are afraid to acknowledge that as well, that I don't agree with you, but you know, you're know, you still my best friend, my brother, my sister.
2: Exactly. People exactly. aren't willing
0: to agree to disagree.
2: I mean, that's, that's what democracy on earth is. Mm-hmm. But you have to talk. Right. You can't say, don't talk to me because I don't like your thoughts. That's ridiculous. Yep. You know, I guess as if I were a leader, I'd say, shut up and listen. <laughs>
0: Tova for president, shut up and listen. I like it.
2: (laughs) I really love how you said
1: that if you were the leader, you'd have everyone sing together. Because I think that having the idea of something good to build together is also key to avoiding things like scapegoats and everything. Because when you feel that you can be a part of a solution in building something together, that's more effective than people don't want to hate, I believe. So I believe like what you were saying, if you can do something
2: constructive. I heard this beautiful story. A little grandson says to his grandfather, I have these conflicting feelings. Sometimes I'm very angry and very hateful on one side. On the other side, I'm so kind and loving and they constantly fight with each other. Do you feel the same way? And the grandpa says, yes, I do. I have the same thing. I have these wonderful feelings and these terrible feelings. And the grandson says, but who wins in this battle? And the grandfather said, the one you feed. Yep. Yeah. If you feed the good side of you, I'm waiting to be confronted.
0: (laughs) It's interesting because a lot of what we do here at Stern, speakers and advisors, is we represent corporate strategy. And your connection to life strategy, how to not only understand each other, is so, so relevant to how to run an organization, how to run a company, how to interact with your employees and your...
2: Oh, absolutely. They have these uh, weekends where they build communities within a corporate world, how they can react with each other and you're right.
0: And and I do have to get a plug in there. You can find uh, Tova at our website, sternstrategy.com. Uh, tell us about the TikTok account. Where can people find you there?
2: I can tell you it's under Tova Talk. That's you know T-O-V-A-T-O-K. Okay. At TikTok.com. Okay. My grandson does such a wonderful job. In fact, I called him. He's just home from school, I said to him, I want to do one on Mm anti-Semitism. As soon as he has time, because he's the busy one right now. Maybe I can do something. I just feel so helpless sitting Mm -hmm. without really contributing in some way.
0: I think you're contributing so much. And one of the special things about technology today is that this lasts forever. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned too before, I was in uh, broadcasting for a very long time. And one of the things that I really took to heart is when you put something out into the world, when you record something, it lasts forever. Whether it's radio signals on earth, whether it's data on the internet, yeah. um, You know, your words, whether you recorded them yesterday, or a year ago, you know, it stays and it stays with people.
2: I really hope so. Somebody says to me, you're 85 years old. Don't you ever say no to something? I said, nope. <laughs> now, I have never refused to talk in all the years.
0: It's, it's amazing. You must be having such amazing experiences.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I just came out with another book for children. Okay. Oh, for 12 to 18. 16. And it's going to be same name, Daughter of Auschwitz, but completely different parts with pictures. And you know it's a wonderful thing? It's going to be translated into German. Oh, okay. So the children are going to learn in their language what really happened.
0: You heard it here first, everybody. Do you have a general date when that should be coming out?
2: They said they're going to start the advertisement of January, February ready. Great. And they'll be July, August. Okay. We keep our eyes out for it.
0: That's so cool.
2: It's, it's exciting, you know.
0: It's such a special thing for you to be spreading your message like that. Tova, I thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank
2: you very much for having
0: me. Your message is so important, and the way you spread your message is so unique and relevant today that uh, I just think it's very important what you're doing.
2: Thank you
1: for the interview. Thanks, Justin, Meg, and Tova. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with NYU professor Dolly Chug about her latest book, A More Just Future how to be a great boss, and what it means to be a goodish person. That's next time on Minds Worth Meeting.
0: Minds Worth Meeting is a production of Stern Strategy Group. Our hosts are Whitney Jennings and Justin Lewis. Our guest host for this episode was Meg Virig. Alan Halimsky is our video editor. Whitney Jennings is Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Manager. Brandon Pantano is our Digital Marketing Director. Join us next time for another episode of Stern Strategy Group's Mindsworth Meeting. Listen, rate, and share us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.